Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Hello, this is Sarah Merrick with the Church Times Books podcast. I'm in conversation today with Mark Oakley, and we're going to be talking about the book we've chosen as this month's book club title. And the book is The Lincoln Highway by Amor Tolls. And he's American writer, a former investment banker, best known probably for his multi-million copies sold of his 2016 novel, A Gentleman in Moscow. Mark, welcome. Could you start, please, by telling us a little bit about um, the story of The Lincoln Highway? Mm. Well, it begins uh, with a very homely sort of uh, scene of a young man who's obviously got himself into trouble at some point, being driven home by the warden of a juvenile work facility. And uh, he served um, a year in this facility We later discover that what had actually happened was he was being bullied at a county fair and he retaliated by hitting the bully, but the bully slipped and fell back and hit his head and died. So he was put into this facility for involuntary manslaughter. But he's a a good guy and he's only 18 and the warden knows this and he drives him home and gives him a bit of a homely talk about, you know, you are a good person and you've got the whole of your life before you. So, uh, so far, so good. (laughs) But uh, he discovers not only has his father died uh, and left the house, but the house is going to be repossessed. So actually, he has very little money and no home. Meanwhile, in the boot of the car that the warden had been driving, two of the peers of uh, uh, Emmett, uh, this boy, have stowed away and they um, pop out. And so begins the story of Emmett, who's reunited with his eight-year-old brother. And they want to head off west now in a big blue car that they they own. And they want to go west to uh, California to try and find their mother. But the other two who've come out of the boot have other designs. And they take the car and they head east. And so begins this... uh, road story and I'd quite like to come back to that perhaps mm. but that's where that's where it begins and, and and heads out. So it's quite a contrast to a gentleman in Moscow because that took place entirely in a hotel and we're now on an open road and it's a very famous road more than 3,000 miles all the way across mm. the US from from New York to San Francisco. So I suppose one of my questions is is it a classic road trip novel? Is that what you think it is? Well, I think in many ways it is. I mean, uh, as I was reading it, you know, it's hard not to think of things like, you know, Grapes of Wrath by uh, Steinbeck or As I Lay Dying by Faulkner or, you know, John Kerouac's On the Road. All those those stories very much come to mind, I think. And uh, the author I've, I've heard speak on this, actually, is that that sort of idea of the road story is about not only the journey that's being taken in an expansive America. I mean, this is set in the in the fifties 
on a road that had only been sort of built 40 years to connect one side of America to the other. Before that, America was full of little local roads. Here was the big road ready for a new age where the car was coming into its own, as it were. So an expansive sense of, of journeying. But of course, what it's really about is people on the move internally. And all the characters in this story, really, the main characters, are all young people on the verge of adulthood. Mm. Uh, and so it's about their internal journeys as well. So I think it is a typical road story, but I do have one or two questions about that because traditionally those sort of road stories are about men, Western men who get in a car and they, they go and have fun and they discover things about life and themselves. And sometimes they discover, you know, the exotic if they're going out of, out of their own country. But now we are post, you know, Ridley Scott's Thelma and Louise. Now that we're post novels like, you know, The Underground Railroad, Colson Whitehead's, you know, slavery novel, can we still come back to a story like this that is so sort of not cliched but but in a sense naive mm -hmm. um and i'm wondering whether that sort of patriarchal men on the road is just a little bit too difficult for us to fully suspend our disbelief about anymore mm -hmm. uh, so i have a few questions about that i, I wondered about the whole suspense of disbelief anyway are we supposed to take it literally any of it because of course some of the people they well we'll talk about the characters in a minute but they encounter all sorts of extraordinary people don't they who who are you know i don't know more or less believable i mean they're very wonderful and beautifully drawn but i did find myself the whole time thinking perhaps we shouldn't take any of it too literally um i mean even the fact without we, we want to avoid spoilers but there's one bit where some of the people the main four characters get separated and then manage to meet each other again I mean realistically could that possibly you know it, it seems in a big place like America the chance of actually finding each other I don't know I didn't feel perhaps we were supposed to take it too literally Yes, and, and the other thread, there's a sort of there are lots of running themes, but one of them again is um reference to the Odyssey. And so you've got this sort of this this sense of their longing at one level, they're all they're all seeking something, and they're all, I mean, that's very much kind of standard quest stuff, but they're also trying to find home in the way that Odysseus is, and you've got that threading it through. And of course, Odysseus meets all sorts of monsters along the way, you know, some of whom help him and some of whom don't. So I think quite a lot of it felt to me deliberately um picaresque and sort of you know and meant to be a good yarn as well is that how it's felt to you yes and I, I think it it's a little bit like the odyssey in that it is episodic so you know the story sets off and we're, we're very used aren't we now to, to the sort of film type novels of a beginning a, a meaty middle and some sort of resolution mm -hmm. This is not so much that. This is a journey of episodes, mm, mm. of meeting characters, and of you trying to appropriate what's just happened. Yes. <laughs> as, as they are also trying to do. At worst, that, that to me can feel a bit like a novel that's been written by committee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or as, as somebody once said about another book, I think, you know, it feels like a bookshelf's been put in a blender. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But at best, you know, these episodes are rather fun and you meet interesting characters and each one's a little story in itself. So, yes, I, I think that it, 
sometimes I think those sort of the, the intertextuality, if we want to be big in our words, but where he brings in, you know, whether it's the Three Musketeers or whether it's Odysseus, is, is slightly overplayed, I think. Mm -hmm. And to meet, you know, the black Ulysses who's not gone back to his wife for eight years yes. in a train just sounded a little bit. But as you say, maybe I'm being too much of a literalist there. And uh, Yes, I, I found it, I found it, I think, at the very least, a rattling good yarn and very, um, very kind of entertaining. There was this sense of, of sort of hectic travel, which I found quite appealing. Um, and, you know, it's certainly for me, it was a page turner. Um, but let's talk about the four main characters. Mm. Um, did you have a favourite? So we've got Emmett, big brother of Billy. We've got Woolly and Duchess, who are the other the people who would turn up unexpectedly and join the journey. What What did you feel about them? And yes, and were, were there any you found yourself particularly gunning for? <laughs> well, there's no doubt is there I, that Emmett is the sort of pivotal character. Most people are revolving around Emmett a bit. Uh, he's well, well. What is he? He's he's a sort of noble figure. He's upstanding young man, been raised on a farm in Nebraska, full of Midwest values, um, untainted by the city. Mm. <laughs> um, found himself in detention, um, but very um, strong sense of justice from mm. that. He's very sympathetic to the family he's injured. He regrets what's happened. And he has that wonderful line, doesn't he? Um, if we've got unfinished business, let's finish it. <laughs> Which one of the other characters finds, you know, the real pulse of the person. Yeah. Uh, nobody else would really say that and mean it, but but Emmett does. So Emmett, I think, is is an interesting character. But for me, he's not the most interesting. I think that has to be Duchess, who's a compelling figure, um, comes from a... A difficult background. His father was obviously a drunk, <laughs> was a Shakespearean actor, but then goes into vaudeville, goes around Midwest towns, you know, doing great big Shakespeare speeches from the plays. So Duchess grows up knowing these speeches. I don't think he knows the plays, but no. he knows these speeches because he's he's heard so many of them. So he's full on the one hand of this sort of theatrical flair and beautiful words <laughs> but on the other side you know there's a huge wound in this person he obviously grew up you know in brothels with a father who kept running away from his debts uh with a lot of pretense he's put in an orphanage by his father who pretends that he's an orphan for a while and he grows up with this wound which he covers as we all do with confidence overconfident so he's quick-witted he's very silver-tongued um, you feel that the oxygen in the room is mainly his <laughs> when he's there but he's got this sort of ledger morality mm. where money is the metaphor for morality that mm. you know you get paid back for what you borrow and that might mean you so if you've done bad you know you need to atone for it or if somebody's done bad to you, you, you need vengeance. Mm. And I think it's very interesting that this author, who's an investment professional, has got at the heart of this novel something based around debt mm. <laughs> and payback, mm. uh, because that's what the morality that's being explored in this book is, is really. 
And it's fascinating that the author chooses to make Duchess the one of the characters who speaks in the first person, whereas the others, the, the narration is in the third person. I mean, I imagine that was a very conscious decision. What, what did you think he was aiming for there? Well, I suppose uh, I'm living proof of this in that maybe it's because you identify more with that person mm, mm. when it's in the first person. That first person sounds like my person. Mm. Um, certainly it did for me, I think. You feel a little bit closer to Duchess, even though he's such a sort of flawed diamond. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, there's there's nothing malevolent about him. He's He's not an evil character. He's a pretty good person in many ways, but he's, as I say, pretty wounded. And as we know, hurt people can often hurt people. Mm. And that's what he often yes. does. And what about Woolly? There's something very sort of unworldly and lost about Woolly, isn't there? Again, he's a damaged person. Yes. Uh, so he's very different. He's he's coming from, you know, an upstate New York wealthy family, you know, where they've got lots of houses. We don't quite know, do we, um, what's going on with him. It feels as you as you encounter him that perhaps he has some sort of learning disability or some condition. We know he's taking medicine through which he's seeing the world, I think, quite often. Mm -hmm. He reminds me a little bit of Lenny in mm -hmm. Of Mice and Men. Uh, now, again, you might say that him and the other character will come on to in a minute, Billy, you might just think, oh, dear, this is more cliche, the sort of idiot-savant. Yes the sort of slow-witted, insightful people. But I do think he's quite interesting, actually, because he he's somebody who, if you remember in the first part of the book, he's got very strong belief about how a house ought to be planned. Yes. And, he, he, you know, he starts helping Billy think through an ideal house. What he's, what he's saying in that is, is so expansive and generative and generous, you know, oh, we've got to have a place for people to meet and sit around the fire and uh, somewhere that's secret where they can just be by themselves. And you get, you get a little sense of him and his inner landscape as it's trying to plan this house. But quite often you feel that that's gone into hiding and camouflage. I mean, he is rather overshadowed by the theatrical Duchess, but he's an interesting person, I think. And uh, I felt I wanted to know more about him. Yes, I became very uh, increasingly fond of him, I think, through the book. Mm. And of course, the whole thing about planning a house, these these are four homeless young people, aren't they, in yes. different ways, homeless for different reasons, yes. with this longing for home, whether home is a place or a person or a you know physical building. And some of that sort of emerges um, in the book. They're all boys looking for parents, too, yes. in a way, as indeed often road novels are they mm. often are come from broken homes or orphaned spaces as it were and home becomes something that is hunted mm. and because of that you know there's some dangers yes yes and one of the things you've talked about Emmett being this kind of quite solid uh, um, person and he's honorable and one of the things he has done through his this terrible accident that that ended up with him in in incarcerated is he's he sort of learned a lesson which is about how to behave and he makes a promise to billy doesn't he that you know he won't he won't you know this he will, mm -hmm. will not let something like this happen again let's talk a bit about billy because he mm. <laughs> he's 
I mean, he's he's a precocious eight-year-old, isn't he? But he's very, very important to the story. He is. Uh, and when I first encounter him, I I thought, oh, I, I don't believe this eight-year-old boy, actually. I, I found him too sort of self-assured and a bit, as you say, precocious. However, when I think back, I think, no, I've I've met lots of children like this, actually. I, and then I had this moment of thought, oh, I think I might have been a bit like that when I was eight years old. Because <laughs> I remember being told at school when I was 12, you know, you're 12 going on 50, Oakley. Uh, and Billy certainly is eight going on 80, isn't he? He is a boy who has been looked after while his brother's been detained. He's been looked after by Sally, who we can come back to. So he's and Henry's father's died, his mother's disappeared, so he's on his own. Mm. And as I know myself, when you're a single child, you make your own entertainment, you make your own world, which you move into. And, you know, he's <laughs> he's rather sweetly walking around with this book, which he's read, we're told, 24 times. Uh, and it's a book of journeys and heroes. And he's very intelligent. He, he's very insightful. But there is a sort of naivety to him, which is endearing, a vulnerability to him. But of course, a lot of that sort of early encounters of, of excitement and the, the, the interesting characters happen around Billy. You know, for instance, Ulysses and the boxcar and so on. And he is pivotal, as you say. I remain, the jury's out for me. <laughs> as to how believable he is at the end of the day. But he's got a very strong sense of justice. He concentrates in a way that many, I mean, Duchess, you know, he, he doesn't really think before he acts sometimes. Mm, mm, mm. But Billy does. And so, yes, I was grateful for him being in the novel, I think. Yes, and and I really I really wanted that book to exist, actually, um, the, the book of these journeys. And... And there's, in fact, our reviewer in the Church Times described this book by Professor Abacus Abernathy as offering some kind of spiritual sat-nav um, to show how heroes on a, on a quest should behave. And I thought, you know, that was, I, I rather liked him. I rather liked the fact that, you know, wherever there was always something that, you know, the, the professor had to, to offer through this book. Um, and that sort of goes throughout the journey as well. And of course, uh, you know, remember this, as I said, this is a boy who's lost his father. Yes, yes, absolutely. He's yeah. finding the the fatherly wisdom in this book, I think. Yes. And, yeah. and he's literally holding it next yeah. to him all yes, the time. Touching it. Yes, touching it, yes. Yes, and I found myself wondering if he would be angrier and more disturbed than he was. He does seem to be remarkably kind of, you know, contented as long as he's with Emmett. But yes, nonetheless, I enjoyed his company, I have to say. What about some of the other characters who they meet along the way? In your piece, you refer to, to Pastor John. Do you want to say a little bit about him? <laughs> well, Pastor John is, uh, well, yes, he's a, a, an ordained uh, clergy person. Um, he is uh, very good at preaching the all-seeing and all-knowing God. Uh, meanwhile, he's planning theft. Uh, he's very capable of a bit of violence. Um and at one point, he's planning his evening with um, oysters, a bottle of wine and some female companionship. So I think we're getting the sense of him. He's very good at quoting the Bible, of course. <laughs> uh, 
Um, and I think we just get a sense from old Pastor John that, um, you know, people can use good things. They can use the Bible. They can use uh, righteous uh, personas to camouflage mm, mm, their mm. true selves. And um, uh, there's, there's nothing like a good bit of, you know, heightened hypocrisy <laughs> in a character <laughs> in a novel like this that we just you know we just love to point the finger and say yeah. how awful yes uh, but of course up to a point we're all doing it with our various masks every day of our lives yes yes and in fact one of the running themes obviously in the book we've already touched on it in different ways but it's also i guess shown up by pastor john is the nature of of morality isn't it what makes yes. what makes good behavior and particularly perhaps um post-war um, the tussle for masculinity. What does that mean in this 1954 world? And you've got Duchess with his very Old Testament values, and Emmett has a much more kind of you know folksy thing about um, you know the good play, plain folk in the community and and kind of playing his part. Did you find that um, compelling, or did you find it a bit too folksy? <laughs> Depends what day you got me, really. <laughs> And I, I found that a lot with this book. There were some days where I could pick it up and quite enjoy some consummate storytelling with some nuggets of, you know, wisdom and insight and and humour. Mm. You know, Duchess mm. is quite a funny person. And then there were some times where I picked it up and I thought, oh, dear, really? <laughs> you know, have I got much longer to go? <laughs> it's 517 pages long. Um, and uh, as one reviewer I read <laughs> said... It was a bit like a road journey for him because he kept wanting to say, are we there yet? <laughs> I, I, I did occasionally get that. But I think the whole business of morality is opposite because what have you got in the, in the early 50s? It's set in 1954. You've got a world that's post two world wars mm. and pre-rock and roll mm. liberate. So it's sort of poised from pain into an unknown yet future. So a lot of it is folksy to us, I think. Mm -hmm. It feels folksy. But of course, we tend to think that we are people who are simply shaped by our own times. What I think comes through here, and it's very interesting that I, I did read in a, in a piece that as he was writing this, Tolls discovered that the 18-year-old characters were the same age in the same year as his own father had been. And you have to ask a few questions then about, you know, is our character and personality and morality and worldview simply shaped by our own childhoods and times? Or is it the case that we're also shaped by the years in which our parents or the people who were bringing mm -hmm. us up were being formed. Yes. <laughs> and I, I think that's very true. I mean, yes. I was brought up by my grandmother who, you know, had lived through the Second World War as a young woman. And I still know that we were turning lights off and checking yes. that we, we'd got food enough for the next few yeah. days. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And I inherited that. Yes, absolutely. It's fascinating, isn't it? And there's been quite a lot of work about around trauma, which is that that you, we pass on trauma sort of physically yeah. to people, which I think is extraordinary yeah. and slightly terrifying, actually, for those of us who are, 
you know parents particularly the idea that you you know you carry on passing things down the generations but really interesting and yeah. i think the morality issue you see i think comes out you know if, if you've just been through two major world wars and you've got a slightly pent up spirit that's waiting to burst in the near future the whole business of morality which way are you looking for your morality are you looking to the past are you looking to the future is very alive i think mm, and, mm. and and very different in the states as to where you might have been born if you're on one of the coasts um, in the in the cities your morality would be very different to these nebraskan farmers yes yes no that absolutely and there's a very there's a very lovely bit towards the end of the book i don't know if you remember where woolly's sister is reflecting on some of woolly's difficulties and she says that when we're young we're kind of taught um that we should keep our vices in check you know things like anger and envy um and then she says when i look around it seems to be that many of our lives end up being hampered by virtue instead so if you take a trait that by all appearances is merit, a trait that's praised by pastors and poets, a trait that we've come to admire in our friends and hope to foster in our children, and you give it to some poor soul in abundance, it will almost certainly prove an obstacle to their happiness. I thought that was very poignant. I mean, particularly because we know, you know, Woolly doesn't find life easy. And I suppose I found myself wondering, I don't know, what are your reflections on that? Do you think that's true? Do you think, do you think actually virtue can be, um, if you're overburdened with it, can actually cause more problems? <laughs> you're asking the wrong person here. I don't have many virtues. Um, well, I think there can be an intensity that can set in with people that that becomes damaging, not not only to themselves but to each other. I think it was C.S. Lewis who commented about the woman who lived for others, and you could tell the others by their hunted expression. Uh, <laughs> and I think there can also be a a sort of uh, intense focus on virtues, uh, which one can have, which focuses really on other people rather than yourself. Mm -hmm. I've just mm -hmm. been to see the crucible and there's a lovely line where you know one of the religious community looks at another and says your justice would freeze beer <laughs> and you know you, you can encounter those sort of yes people. oh absolutely yeah um but i did get a sense in this novel that there are characters for whom there is a, a real desire not to be like that but to find a, a moderate middle way that has some integrity and isn't just about eye for eye, you know, payback ledger stuff. I suppose what I did get a little bit tired of is the masculinity of it all. You mm -hmm. know, there ain't many women in this. Uh, the women are really Sally, who keeps cooking good meals that she's never thanked for. Yes. A little bit tired of. Yes. There are a few nuns who come yeah. out with a bit of wisdom and there are a few happy hookers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, and a secretary right at the end. Yes. You know, now you might say, well, that's 1954, honey. Or you might say, really? Or is that just all a bit cliched? Um, I, I think the novel might have been helped by a, a few recognisable women. Yeah. yeah. No, I do rather agree. And and that sort of takes me to the last question. You've already mentioned the reviewer who um who said, you know, are we nearly there yet? You know, described it as lengthy, monotonous, and exhausting. And then, in fact, another reviewer, in fact, our own Church Times reviewer, wrote the masterful storytelling is so humane, uplifting, and compelling. 
that I didn't want the journey to end. And I just wonder um, why you think it's so divisive and, and where you end up on it. I think it's a sort of mixture between John Irving and Dan Brown. Mm, right. So you get John Irving, who's a very good storyteller. Yeah. Uh, and when you're enjoying it, or when I was enjoying it, I'm thinking, oh, this is a bit like John Irving. And then when I was getting annoyed with it and thinking, oh, this is just a little bit too much. It's over the top. It's uh, My eyes were rolling into the back of my head. So then I think it's a bit like Dan Brown. <laughs> who I don't enjoy. No. And I think that actually this is a is a novel where those two styles are combined mm, mm. and you can't separate them. And so it is going to be a bit of a frustrating book if you don't like one of those two. Yes. No, that's a lovely comparison. Thank you for that. That's a great moment to end on. We've been discussing The Lincoln Highway by Amor Tolls, and you can read Mark's introductory essay and some questions for a discussion in the Church Times and online. And finally, Mark, can you recommend something else you've read recently or you're reading that you think our readers might enjoy? Yes, I have not. Well, um, how long ago was it? Yes, I've fairly recently finished uh, a book called The New Life by Tom Crew. I thought it was a very good book and I'm now noticing that other people are thinking that because he seems to be putting being put on every um, award list that's going at the moment. It's uh, a debut novel, it's uh, an embodied historical novel with the backdrop of the Oscar Wilde trial. It's set in 1894 London and really what it's about, if, if I can, if, you know, if I wrote the cover on the front it would say you know two marriages two forbidden love affairs and a search for social and sexual freedom in late 19th century London and I think it's a compelling read it has one or two saucy moments so brace yourself but it is it's a beautifully written insightful uh, you get a very strong sense of the period and really, it is about two men, John Addington and Henry Ellis, who are fictional characters, but based on real characters, who are trying to write in defence of homosexuality, or inversion, as they called it, and also new patterns of family and um, of living that are unrestricted, that come out of those patriarchal Victorian mores. So... Uh, it's it's on the cusp of something new. Mm. And these two people have to work out whether you, to, to make change, do you simply model it in your own lives or do you argue for change and live in the old world? And you get that combination. And, and there's a lovely line in it, which, which I'll end you with. We must live in the future we hope to make. Brilliant. Thank you very much for the recommendation. That sounds great. We'll look out for it. Mark, thank you very much for your time. It's really good to talk to you today. Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.